Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode, I think this is episode 25 of the Jonas Aller Show. Um, and for those of you who do not know me, I enjoy studying the Bible. It's what I do. I love it. And so today, we're going to continue to study the Bible, and we're going to study um, part two of what is commonly known and referred to as the Olivet Discourse which is the discourse that Jesus Christ had with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So, last week we did part one, this week we're doing part two. Today we're looking at verses, um, well last week, just, just to say this, last week we looked at verses 1 through 26, and we saw that those verses were a direct reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 70 AD. Uh, we saw um, that chapter 21 all the way through chapter 24 of Matthew, they all connect. Jesus enters the temple, the standing temple in Jerusalem, and he prophesies about that standing temple. We even see in Matthew 22:45 that the chief priests say, Jesus, we know that you're speaking of us. It says that they perceived that he was speaking about them. So all throughout chapter 21 through 24, we see Jesus addressing the standing temple, the people around him. And yet a lot of times when people get to Matthew chapter 24, they want to make it talk about a future generation and a future temple. And I just find that this does not line up with a clear, the clear reading of scripture. So for the sake of clarification and to help inform everybody the the futurist interpretation of this chapter as a whole did not become popular until the 1830s now i'm i'm not bringing that up to try to divide the church because i really really don't want division i don't like it i don't think it's necessary over these kind of topics it's this is a secondary issue and it should not cause conflict within the body of christ however I bring this up because most people hold to this futuristic view of prophecy without understanding its history or how recently it came into existence. So one of the things that I did is I took it upon myself to study all the major positions on prophecy and eschatology. I studied dispensationalism, preterism, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And I have literally by now spent hundreds and hundreds of hours at this point reading Everything under the sun that I can get my hands on, studying sometimes nine to ten hours a day. And I can truly say that knowing all the different views out there is extremely helpful in understanding and unpacking scripture. Most people grow up holding to one view, one particular view, and we rarely question it. For example, just, just as, a, as an example, most people don't know that the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture was completely absent from church history until the 1830s when a man named John Nelson Darby came up with this view on the end times. Now that, that's important to know, and that's something that I didn't know until I studied this. So this is not an attempt for me to point out error within the different end times views, but rather call everybody to study eschatology. I would have never known any other perspectives had I not studied and I've been studying this now for, for over a year, much more vigorously recently. But it wasn't until I really studied and began to consider other views out there that it helped me to draw closer and closer to Christ Jesus. 
Now, eschatology has become one of my biggest passions because the more I study, the more I see Christ. And the more I see Christ, the more I see the glory of God made manifest. So I challenge you, each and every one of you watching, dig into this stuff. Read your Bible alongside each of you, getting rid of your presuppositions, and just ask, God, please help me to, to see the truth of your word. Now, with that in mind, I do feel that it's necessary to say that no one can ever say that they know these things for certain. The Bible tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord. But that should not stop us from seeking truth, challenging the status quo, and building up one another with different ideas and perspectives. We should be discussing these ideas, challenging each other's perspectives. Too many people that I come across, including myself at one time, are so married to ideas that they cannot accept the reality that they might be wrong. We need to stop marrying ourselves to secondary doctrines and unify as one body in Christ. In Christ Jesus. <clears throat> After studying premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, I can find beauty and God's glory in each view. Do I hold to a particular view over another? Of course, but I can still respect my brothers and sisters in each view. For example, I love premillennialist devotion to a straightforward reading of God's word and their desire to be extremely faithful to its literal historical context. That's beautiful. I love the amillennial hope that Christ is presently reigning with his saints and that Satan is bound from deceiving the nations through the death and resurrection of our Lord. And I love the postmillennial optimism that the world will continue to get better and better with more people coming to Christ until we live in a mostly Christianized world. What a beautiful picture that is. And I don't have to agree with all those views to see the unifying theme that is Christ Jesus. So, with that being said, I gave this very long preface because what I'm preaching today is going to be flying in the face of the modern commonly held eschatological view. But I pray that you listen with an open mind, an open heart, and a desire for truth. Not what you've grown up hearing, but the truth. My hope is that even if we get to the end of this sermon and you still disagree with me, you would see Christ's name magnified through today's preaching, and that ultimately unity within the body of Christ would prevail as we look deeply into the word. So as we begin, let's just pray and ask God for his leading. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come before you now, so grateful for Christ, so grateful for the cross, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the ascension where he sits in heaven, Lord. We are so blessed to be living in a world that is totally under the sovereign control of you, Lord. We rest in your finished work. We rest in your grace. And we ask you this morning, Lord, as we dig into a very difficult passage, that your word, your truth would come out of this passage this morning, Lord. And that the things that I say would not be my words, but they would be your words. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. So today we are primarily looking at verses 29 through 35 of Matthew chapter 24. So next week we'll be looking at verses 26 and 28 along with 
verses 36 and 51. And the reason I'm dividing verses 26 and 28 up and I'm lumping them into 36 and 35 is I believe that they're addressing the same um, thing. And that comes from uh, Luke's gospel that records that conversation as a whole being recorded at a completely separate point than the Olivet Discourse. So verses 27 and 28 of Matthew are found in Luke chapter 17, verses 22 through 37, as well as Matthew uh, 36 and 51. They're all found within that one chapter of Luke's gospel. So Luke records this as a completely separate conversation. So using scripture to interpret scripture, I believe that it's safe to say that these verses in Matthew all connect. So I believe that verses 26 and 28 of Matthew 24, as well as verses 36 to the end of the chapter through all of Matthew 25, refer to the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of time, the, the parousia. So write that down for clarity if you need to. Matthew 24, 26 through 28, and 36 through 51 all refer to the second coming of Christ at the end of history. The reason we can associate those verses with the, the other verses is because, like I said, Luke records this same dialogue as being one conversation in chapter 17, which is separate from the Olivet Discourse, which is, in his account takes place in chapter 21. So, with that being said, today our focus is on verses 29 through 35, which have proven to be some of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture. And I don't want to present these verses today as if what I share is the only view out there. Many people hold to many different interpretations of these verses, and I respect and love all these people. However, what I'm going to propose today, I believe is the most accurate interpretation of these verses, taking into account the audience being addressed, the context, and also looking at all the Old Testament imagery and prophecy which will help us 21st century Christians to enter into how the disciples of Christ would have understood what is being said here. Now, most people assume that Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 35, are talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. And after much study, and I mean much study, over all the different interpretations, spending time in prayer, reading the text over and over and over again, I find this to be impossible. So let's, before I get into any of this, let's start by turning together to Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29 through 35. And let's read this together. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 35. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, I can already imagine what you're thinking. Jonah, 
How can this not be talking about the second coming of Christ? Coming on the clouds, gathering the elect. This sounds like end days prophecy to me. And I'll admit it, it does sound very much like Jesus is referring to his second coming. But I'm begging us to pause, to take our understanding on this side of the cross out of the way and try to look at this the same way that the disciples would have. Just an example of how deeply we sometimes impose our understanding into various texts when we read the disciples' question, what will be the sign of your coming, we automatically assume that they're asking about the second coming. They're saying, when will be your second coming and what will be the sign of it? That's what we assume. And so we end up reading the chapter with that idea as our guiding light. But here's something very important to note. The disciples at this time didn't fully understand that Jesus was going to die. Not only that, they had no clue that he was going to rise again. Beyond that, they had no reason to believe that he was about to ascend. And beyond that, they wouldn't have even had a clue about the second coming of Christ. This is indisputable. We can look in scripture and see how shocked they were when he dies and how doubtful they are that he has risen. These disciples thought he was the Messiah and the Messiah died. Therefore, maybe we were wrong that he's the Messiah. These disciples would have had no idea that Jesus was dying, rising, ascending, and returning. So we must ask the question, what did they mean by asking, what will be the sign of your coming? And I think that the simple, obvious answer is that they were referring to the coming messianic kingdom. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and the Jewish people expected a Messiah to come and set up an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, where they would finally be vindicated from all the nations around them, and reign as God's chosen people. There is no doubt that this is exactly what the disciples expected. So when Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple, they must have assumed that this destruction of the temple must be in conjunction with the coming messianic kingdom and the end of the old covenant age. The temple was seen as the immovable, eternal dwelling place of God. So if something was to happen to it, that must indicate that the, that the messianic kingdom was coming. So this, this is so clear to me. And so if we read verses 29 through 35 with that perspective, we can begin to see a picture unfolding, not of the second coming of Christ, but of messianic victory. Two other extremely important things to note. Verse 29 begins with the word immediately, which is the Greek word euthos, euthenos, which literally means at once. This is so important because in light of last week's message it should be without question that Jesus was referring to the destruction of that specific temple his disciples point to that standing temple and Jesus responds by saying not one stone here will be left on another and when they ask him when these things will take place he responds directly to them as we saw this cannot be talking about a future temple in a future time to a future people when the, his disciples were clearly asking for an answer to their specific question regarding that standing temple with that being said it becomes even more important to not overlook the word euthanos or immediately because this implies directly after the tribulation of those days at once the following things will take place and going beyond that, more importantly than the word immediately, is what we find in verse 34. Read verse 34 with me, please. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things 
take place. We, we cannot brush this aside. A lot of folks, including uh, famous pastors like John MacArthur, who hold to a futuristic reading of this passage, insist that this refers to whatever generation is alive at the time that these things take place. Now, there's a few reasons that this just doesn't work. One, Jesus uses the word this and not the word that. This implies close by, that implies far off. Even just a basic English understanding makes this clear. Secondly, in all of the Gospels, every single one, when Jesus talks about this generation with the same Greek wording in every single instance, it's referring to the present generation that he's speaking to. It never refers to a different generation. Some examples of this. In Matthew 23, 36, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In Mark 8, 12, it says, And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In Luke eleven fifty, he says, So that the blood of the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. And these are just a few examples of many. Whenever Jesus says this generation, he is always, without fail, referring to that present generation. So people who want to make this a future generation, the burden of proof is on you to show where in scripture we are warranted to make an exception in this case. I do not think scripture warrants us to take this and make it about a different generation when the context clearly shows Jesus is talking directly to his disciples. And even if we were to make this about a future generation, the fact that Jesus is addressing questions his disciples had and is addressing them directly, verse 33 of Matthew 24, when you see all these things, you know that it is near, about specific things, this makes Jesus honestly not look very credible. And my friends, due to this text, many have left the faith due to the idea that Jesus was wrong. He got it wrong, they'll say. And atheists will try to use this as leverage to show why Jesus cannot be trusted. The point I'm trying to make is that when we say this refers to whatever generation is alive at the time of these things, it totally takes the entire passage, its historical context, the audience it was addressing, and stretches scripture to fit a definition of what we think is right based on our presuppositions. This is not how we should handle God's word. Rather, we need to read what it says when Christ says this generation, instead of saying, coming on the clouds, gathering the elect, there's no way that happened yet. Therefore, I'm going to change the clear meaning of all the other words to make it fit with what I think it says. Instead of saying that and changing the clear meaning and context of the text, we need to look at the difficult to understand text and first understand it as a first century Christian would have understood it. And secondly, we need to go into the Old Testament prophetic language and see how that fits in here. And as you will see, doing this brings much clarity and honor to the word of God. So to start this entire thing with all those things in mind, let's break down verse 29. Let's just start there and focus on verse 29. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Again, if we approach this with our 21st century understanding of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and future return, we will automatically place this text in the future saying, the sun hasn't been darkened, the stars haven't fallen from heaven, no way has this happened. 
But if we look at the Hebrew understanding of what Jesus was saying, we see that this would have been very clear to them. What Jesus is using is known as apocalyptic language. It is a genre that does not exist in our modern world. It primarily deals with prophetic text. And what we find here is that Jesus is referencing the language used in the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. Turn with me there because this is very cool. Go to Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 through 11. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. I'll let you all get there. So if we read Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, this is what it says. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp and the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Notice the language. Apocalyptic, once again. And do you know what Isaiah 13, 10 was, was prophesying? It was prophesying the judgment and the destruction of Babylon. Now obviously, the stars of their heavens did not go out. The sun was not dark. The moon did not stop shedding its light. But this imagery is used in conjunction with a judgment to make a point of what's happening. It's apocalyptic language. Now, a next chapter. Turn, to me, turn with me to Joel chapter 3, verse 14 and 16. Joel chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Again, this is very, very interesting. Joel chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Again, we see the same language being used. And again, its context is in reference to judgment of sinful nations. Now, the last one we'll look at is from Ezekiel 32, verses 7 through 8. So please turn with me now. Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 through 8. Ezekiel 32, 7 through 8. This is the word of the Lord, and this is what it says. Ezekiel 32, 7 through 8. When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. And all the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. Now, friends, please do not miss the significance of this. This imagery is used all throughout the Old Testament to signal God's coming judgment. I gave just a few examples, but this apocalyptic imagery is all over the Old Testament. The disciples would have understood very clearly what Jesus was saying. He was talking about the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and pointing out to them that this would be a judgment on unbelieving Israel from God himself. This visual was very familiar to the disciples, and they no doubt understood what Jesus was saying. 
And as we continue on, this picture of God's sovereignty and power are made even clearer. Read with me verses 30 through 31. No doubt the most disputed verses in this entire chapter. 30 through 31. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to another. Now, as we try to break down this text, I want to try and demonstrate exactly what Jesus is talking about here and why this is not referring to his second coming. First, again, I want you to consider his disciples' question about the sign of his coming, most likely referring to the coming messianic kingdom. Secondly, like we've been doing all throughout this study, I want us to draw from the Old Testament to understand the language used here, and ultimately a lot of fulfillment found here. So first we read this, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. We need to understand this in its original context. What Jesus is saying here is that then will appear the sign that the Son of Man is in heaven. In other words, a signal of his being in heaven shall appear. So again, let's break this down. The disciples asked for a sign of his coming in Matthew's account. And in the two other accounts, both in Mark and Luke, the question they asked was for a sign when all these things are about to take place. So by looking at both these questions, we can assume that they equated the reign of Christ as the Messiah to be tied to the temple destruction. And Jesus is confirming that right now. The sign that he's in heaven reigning as Lord of Lords is the destruction of Jerusalem. It is proof that he is fulfilling exactly what he said he would. So to paraphrase, the disciples are saying, Jesus, when will the temple be destroyed and what will be the sign that it's about to be destroyed and the sign that you're coming to set up your kingdom? And Jesus responds basically by saying, the sign of my kingdom and my reign as Messiah coincides with the destruction of the temple. The old is gone, the new has come. Think about it this way. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, is preaching about the new covenant to come. The new covenant is coming. The new covenant in my blood is coming. It's not here yet, but it's coming. In the book of Hebrews, written before AD 70 took place, the entire book talks about how through Christ there is a new covenant that is better than the old. So quickly turn with me because this is important. Quickly turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And let's read all the way through that chapter together. I want you to just see this picture. This is a beautiful chapter. One of my favorites in all of scripture. Hebrews chapter 8. Sorry, we got the windows open here. So you may hear some motorcycles or trains going by at some point. Hebrews chapter 8. It says, now the point... And what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. So there's that reigning, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But as it is, 
Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he met, he mediates is better since it is enacting on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says this, Behold, the days are coming, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Notice how this passage ends. What is becoming obsolete is ready to vanish away. But it hadn't vanished away quite yet. Why? Because the temple was still standing. And therefore sacrifices to atone sins and temple worship were still going even after Jesus had left them their house desolate, and the curtain was torn in two. Christ's death made the old covenant obsolete, but as long as the temple was standing, it kept the Judaic old covenant age still in motion. We need to see this. So the church was therefore in a wilderness period of following after Christ, but facing the immense persecution from Jerusalem because they themselves, as Jews, were abandoning the God of Jacob in in the law's mind and committing blaspheme according to the teachers of the law. So my friends, as we read in Hebrews, the entire New Testament, we see so many verses that talk about Christ reigning in glory at the right hand of the Father, countless verses. I would cite a bunch right now, but for the sake of time, I'll only quote one that goes perfectly with what we're talking about. It's one of my favorites, Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. It says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, notice this next part, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting, when? From that time, from what time? The time he sat down, from that time, until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We clearly see that the death and resurrection of Christ, sins for all those believing in Christ were atoned for. Not only that, but through his one sacrifice, those who are being sanctified are perfected. For how long? For all time. And yet the temple sacrifice continued. What an abomination. What blasphemy that would be to God. His son had finished the work and people carried on as if he didn't. Beyond that, we see a clear picture that after this once-for-all offering, Christ sat on his glorious throne, and since that time he reigns until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. This is a glorious reality. What would be a more definitive sign for the persecuted Christian church than a decisive end of the Judaic age? 
stopping the temple sacrifices and worship once for all and basically shouting at the top of his lungs, the old is gone, the new has come. This is a major, major event in history and it would have confirmed without a shadow of a doubt that not only is Christ right about the prophecy, but that he truly has made a new way, rendering the old obsolete. He has demonstrated his power, he has put the old system to death, and introduced a new covenant exclusively. The sign of the coming of the Son of Man is that that the disciples asked about was the destruction of the old covenant system, thus confirming the new way and confirming the present reign of Jesus Christ on his throne. My friends, this is significant. And we get even more clarity to this reality in the next verses, the latter half of verse 30 and 31. So let's read that together. Matthew 24, verse 30 and 31. The latter half of 30 and all of 31. This is what it says. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now here's where I, I just get so excited. Brothers and sisters, when we think about the coming of Christ Jesus in the clouds of heaven, we automatically assume that this refers to a descent. But what if? What if this was not a picture of Christ's descent to earth? but rather a picture of his ascent to power, majesty, and kingdom. Well, this becomes very clear when we understand that Jesus is directly quoting Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. Please turn with me there. You don't want to miss this. Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. Please turn with me there. This is amazing. This blew my mind. It brought me to tears the first time I read it because I just could not believe what I was reading. For all my TikTok people, you know, I, I feel like Pastor Paul right now, sipping my coffee. <clears throat> now listen to this. Daniel chapter 7, 13 through 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What Daniel is describing is not a descent, but rather an ascent in which the Son of Man coming on the clouds is presented before the Ancient of Days. And what happens? He receives all dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And his kingdom and dominion shall never pass away. Wow, brothers and sisters, do not miss this. Jesus is clearly referencing this passage and the image of the son of man coming with the clouds would have been very clear to the disciples who no doubt knew daniel's prophecy well with this understanding of an ascent to power glory and kingdom it makes sense of so many other passages in scripture matthew 10:23 when they persecute you in one town flee to the next for truly i say to you you will not have gone through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes 
Matthew 16, 28. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And my personal favorite, Matthew 26, 64. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on. From now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. My friends, the teachers of the law were so shocked by this because they knew that Jesus was referencing the prophecy in Daniel 7, which made it clear that he was going to receive glory and power and was indeed claiming to be the Messiah. But Jesus' language here does not indicate a future second coming. It indicates an ongoing power that the teachers of the law will behold and live under, whether they like it or not. Jesus is stating, from now on, this is true. I am the Messiah, Lord over all things. Again, these things further point to the fact that Jesus was not describing a bodily coming to earth, but rather his ascent to power, dominion, and ultimately his eternal, never-ending, messianic throne. Further reasons why this cannot be about the second coming is the language that Jesus uses. Notice Matthew 24, 27, which I had said refers to his second coming. Okay, so go, go back and read verse 27. I believe this refers to his second coming. It's an allusion to his second coming. Listen to what it says. It says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible from the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The word coming in that verse is the Greek word parousia. Don't miss this. That word coming in verse 27 is the Greek word parousia, which is used consistently throughout the New Testament to refer to Christ's second coming. The word parousia literally translates as coming, advent, or presence. This word is used all throughout Matthew 24, except for one place. And that is in Matthew 24, verse 30. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. That word coming there in verse 30 is the Greek word archomai which translates as come or arrive. So whereas parousia gives more of the idea of coming somewhere, archomai gives the idea of one having already come or arrived somewhere. In other words, this verse is very likely giving the idea that the tribes of the land will mourn when they see the Son of Man arrive at the throne of the Ancient of Days, given power, glory, authority, and an everlasting kingdom. And as a side note, we have also seen the image of God coming on a cloud also refer to judgment of nations in the Old Testament. It has been spoken that this passage may also use that imagery of the coming on a cloud to help us understand that this event was a judgment on Israel. One example of this imagery would be Isaiah 19.1. If you want to go there, this would be a great, a great time to, to go there. I, Isaiah for chapter 19, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. <laughs> That's awesome. And this is referring to the coming of judgment from God to Egypt, not a literal body co bodily coming of God. So regardless of that other possible meaning, for Christians, this judgment on unbelieving Israel is a sign to them that Jesus Christ is, first of all, he's trustworthy and true. And more than that, 
He is reigning on high, sovereignly bringing a final, definitive, decisive end to the old covenant and paving the way to a clear new way of living in light of his finished work on the cross. So moving on to the next part of the passage, it can, it can also be hard to understand until we grasp the context again. Context is so important that this is still referring to the kingdom of Christ. So let's read verse 31, okay? Verse 31, this is what it says. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It is my understanding that this verse is a description of the Great Commission. The parallels between Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and verses 30 and 31 here just are astounding, absolutely astounding. In Matthew 28, we read this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, which is exactly what happens when the Son of Man coming on the clouds approaches the Ancient of Days. (laughs) And we read further in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Which, again, is very similar to what we hear in verse 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, the obvious question is this. Why is there a trumpet call, and why are angels gathering into the elect? Now, this is... A great question. First, the trumpet call is Christ alluding to Isaiah 27, 13. Isaiah 27, 13. And this is what it says. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are lost in the land of Assyria and those who are driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. A trumpet being blown is a signal in the Old Testament of a gathering of God's people. God bringing his people unto himself. We see a clear picture of this image once again referring to the Great Commission in John's Gospel. John 12.32, this is what it says. John 12.32, go there if you would, because this is a beautiful thing. Listen to what Jesus says. John 12.32 And I, when I am lifted up from earth, will draw all people to myself. Clearly, we see that this is, again, a picture of Christ's ascension to his throne, directly tied in with the gathering of his elect. And the allusion to the trumpet sound is further confirmation that Christ will indeed, without fail, draw his sheep unto himself. Now, the last part of the question is, what about the angels? Well, this is actually the most simple part of this passage. The word angels, as we see here, comes from the Greek word angelos, which literally translates as messengers. Now, whether this refers to heavenly messengers or human messengers, it doesn't really matter because what we see here is a picture of exactly what Jesus said would happen. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. But it's important to note that the word angelos literally translates as messengers. So, my friends, I hope that this is abundantly clear to you. These verses are not talking about the second coming of Christ, but rather his glorious victory in ending the old covenant system once for all, thus proclaiming himself as king over all, and sending out his messengers to gather all his people unto himself, while he reigns over all until all his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Now, we get to the last verses of this section today, and they're relatively easy to go over. So read with me verses 32 through 35 says, 
From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, so you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Some people insist that the fig tree represents Israel, ethnic Israel, and then once you, and that basically once you see the restoration of Israel, all, thing, all these things will take place. But this is again a faulty interpretation in light of two other passages in Scripture. My, my view is always let Scripture interpret Scripture. These two other passages. In the first one, this, this comes from uh, um, Matthew, earlier in Matthew, I think uh, Matthew 21, 19. The first one is when Christ curses the fig tree, which does represent Israel. So if we turn to Matthew 21, 19, Jesus curses the fig tree, that is representation of Israel, and what he says is, may you never bear fruit again. Now all scholars across the board, regardless of eschatology, they all recognize that this cursing of the fig tree was meant to refer to Israel. So if we say that, then in order to make the fig tree in this chapter represent Israel, we need to deny that Christ was being serious when he used the word never. This weakens that view, but what further weakens it to the point of breaking is when we go over to Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse in chapter 21, verse 29, where he says, when you see the fig tree and all the trees. So what we are seeing here is nothing more than Jesus giving an example that when you see a tree growing leaves, you recognize it as a sign that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things, you know that he is near. Now, some translations say, now you will know that it is near, and some will say, you will know that he is near. Regardless, what Christ is referring to is that when the disciples see the signs previously mentioned, they can recognize the end of the Judaic age is near, and that their risen king is near, reigning on his heavenly throne. That is simple and easy. And after this, we read, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And my friends, having read what we just read, having removed our presuppositions, we can clearly see that everything that Christ said did indeed happen within that generation. So I will end with this. I recently watched a film called Collision. It's a phenomenal film if you want to watch it. And in this film... Famous uh, late atheist Christopher Hitchens debated uh, theo theologian Douglas Wilson. Now, while I, I don't hold to the same uh, eschatology that Doug Wilson does, he's a post-millennialist, Wilson does hold to the same perspective that I do on this passage. Now, Hitchens, the atheist, tried to make an argument that Jesus said this generation will not pass away, and because those things hadn't taken place, this proves that Jesus was wrong, making him a false prophet. And he used Deuteronomy's passage that basically said, if things don't happen, you know, then this is a false prophet, they can't be trusted. Now, if you hold to a futuristic reading of this passage, you'd be in some deep trouble. Not only would you have to prove that despite the internal evidence, Jesus was talking about a future temple, and that despite Luke's account, Jesus was referring to a future Antichrist to fill the abomination of desolation, not the Roman armies. Not only would you have to prove all that, 
you would have to argue that in either Jesus was indeed wrong or that he was talking about whatever generation is alive when these things take place, despite that every single time that this generation is mentioned, it refers to that particular generation. Do you see the major dilemma that this view causes when it comes to evangelism? You have to stretch and rationalize clear language to hold on to a futuristic reading. And someone as smart as Christopher Hitchens would have seen right through that. C.S. Lewis, who couldn't make sense of this passage, is literally quoted with saying that when Jesus said this generation, it is the most embarrassing verse in all of Scripture. That's what C.S. Lewis said. It's the most embarrassing verse in all of Scripture. My friends, we cannot accept that thinking. Well, getting back to the, the main point, what I loved about this particular part of the film is that Doug Wilson, without, without is missing a beat, quick as a whip, said, no, Christ wasn't wrong. Everything he did say did come to pass within, within that generation. Hitchens didn't know how to respond. So, of course, Doug Wilson went into great detail showing how this was fulfilled in AD 70 when Christ came in judgment on unbelieving Israel. And Hitchens didn't have anything to say. You could tell that he had never heard that perspective, and it truly made him think. What an incredible witness this is to be able to share the good news of the gospel and clearly proclaim that Christ indeed was right and everything that he said can be seen in history. So my friends, in closing, what we have seen so far is really a beautiful prophecy speaking of the total destruction of the old covenant system, rendering it obsolete. We have seen the picture of the ascension to the throne of our King Jesus, where he has received all power, glory, and dominion forever and ever. We can look around at the world today and see the evidence of his eternal reign as his messengers have indeed gone out at the trumpet sound and that Christ is gathering all men unto himself. From 12 disciples to hundreds and millions of Christians around the world, the gospel has indeed gone out and conquered the nations. This chapter is not a chapter about a future troubles ending with the coming king, but rather a picture of Christ taking his seat at the right hand of the Father, reigning in glory in a battle that has already been won. So next week, we're going to talk about verses 27 and 28 and verse 36 through 51, which point to the majestic second coming of our Lord when he will make all things new. We see his ascension here, and he's reigning in power and great glory. And as we live, we groan with all of creation at the inauguration of the kingdom, waiting with all of creation, longing for the day of its complete and total restoration, when all things will be made as they should be. So my friends, let's pray together as we close our time. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good, God. Man, Matthew 24 has turned into one of my favorite chapters in all scripture. What a beautiful chapter it is displaying just the goodness of Christ, displaying the victory of Christ, Lord, and that we, looking ahead, have nothing to fear because Christ is already on the throne. Christ is reigning right now. And we can rest in the fact that it is finished. Satan has no power. The battle has been won. And as we, your messengers, Lord, go forth into the world proclaiming the gospel, we are preaching about a message, not of a king to come, but of a king who is already on the throne. So, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this beautiful truth. We thank you and we praise you for your word, for clarity in your word, Lord, 
for being able to just look in your word and have scripture interpret scripture to come to the truth. God, we thank you for your majesty, your glory, and your power. And in the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.